Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. In January 1864, Frederick Douglass stood on a balcony overlooking an army encampment in the Fairhaven section of New Haven, Connecticut. He addressed Connecticut's 29th and 30th Volunteer Infantry, comprised of African-American men recruited to fight in the Civil War. Douglass told the men, You are pioneers of the liberty of your race. With the United States cap on your head, the United States eagle on your belt, the United States musket on your shoulder. Not all the powers of darkness can prevent you from becoming American citizens. And not for yourselves alone are you marshaled. You are pioneers. On you depends the destiny of four millions of the colored race in this country. If you rise and flourish, we shall rise and flourish. If you win freedom and citizenship, we shall share your freedom and citizenship. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. One of the men in the crowd that day was 38-year-old Private Orrin Benjamin Hawley. Orrin's great-great-grandson, Charles Ben Hawley, discovered his ancestors fought in the Civil War and now shares those lessons across the country. Ben is the West Haven native who currently lives in Washington, D.C. He told us how he found out about his family's connection to the Civil War. I came upon this quite by accident. I had made uh, friends with uh, a man who is, uh, he's passed now, but he's a historian, uh, uh, Bill Gladstone. And Bill shared with me that he had found a photograph, a photograph in the local New Haven, uh, Connecticut newspaper. The photograph was of the 29th Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment and showed the regiment in camp at Beaufort, South Carolina. Les, having heard that the family members were in the Civil War, got a copy of the roster and immediately noticed seven Holly names on the roster. Thus began my trips to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to discover more about these men. Um, I was actually an amateur genealogist digging through the files and was delighted to find Orrin Benjamin Hawley, our great-great-grandfather, a private in the 29th Regiment. Orrin Benjamin Hawley was born on October 2nd, 1826, in the town of Reading, Connecticut, the son of Harry Benjamin Hawley, and died September 9th, 1900, in New Haven, Connecticut. Both Orrin and his wife, Mary, are buried at the Evergreen Cemetery in New Haven. The couple was the proud parents of 17 children. When I learned that, I almost fell out of my seat. Who has 17 children? But they did. And then we were to discover later on that two of the children died. And this was quite common in agricultural families. Around 200,000 Black soldiers fought in that war, including men from Connecticut. Here's Ben Hawley talking about the men heading off to war from New Haven. They assembled on the green uh, and the, the ladies of the, the, the soldiers 
which was quite common in those days, carried flowers. And as they marched through the streets to the waterfront, they threw flowers. And uh, I, I just try to picture that. And that just brings up a vision that I'm happy and, and proud to talk about. Um, they uh, boarded the, the battleship Warrior um, and left New Haven, oh, uh, March 8th. They boarded the ship and, and went on to uh, South Carolina, Beaufort, where they trained and did uh, exercises that got them used to being soldiers. If you would realize, too, that these were men who probably never held a weapon in their lives, didn't know left face or right face or how to salute, but they learned very well. Frederick Douglass spoke to the 29th after there was some complaining that the, uh, the soldiers, they, they, they were angry because they didn't have any black officers. Um, so Fred gathered them around and talked to them and said, I'm paraphrasing now, listen, you have to learn your trade first. He said, look at your uh, weapons. Who made the weapon? The white man. Your uniforms. Who made the uniforms? The white man. Learn your trade, do it well, and then you can lead uh, the uh, black soldiers. And uh, I, I thought that was very significant um, for, uh, for Fred to say that. I think there's a, a life lesson there about that idea of dignity. And to think about these were black men at a time who were denied dignity, denied humanity, denied the very basic protections of citizenship, but were willing to come together and fight for something that was bigger than they were. And that legacy, we hear it, we hear the pride in your voice as you talk about that regiment and talk about your family's connection to it. You know, they, they back then when people enlisted for the Civil War, they, they all went, the whole neighborhood went. Um, Oren, my uh, ancestor, and his brother Aaron um, had his father-in-law. Oren had his father-in-law in the same uh, unit. Can you imagine having your father-in-law next to you? You know, because soldiers, they, they carouse and they play cards and they drink and they curse and all that. And <laughs> can you picture uh, this man, Oren, <laughs> having the eye of his father-in-law on him while everybody else had a good time? <laughs> I, I, I just wonder how that might have gone. One of the things that when we think about change, particularly for Black veterans, you know, we know that Black veterans returned from Vietnam and often encountered the same kind of prejudice and discrimination that they thought they were fighting against, of, of not feeling fully a part of the country that they were fighting for. Was that the same for this regiment as they returned back home to Connecticut? Or did having that status, that military status, afford them some level of recognition that they may not have had otherwise? There, there, there were some incidents where, uh, because of the color of the skin, there were uh, arguments and fights, et cetera, et cetera. 
but generally they were accepted. Now, when they were discharged in October 1865 in Hartford, uh, Governor Buckingham and another one, he made a long speech about, you men have done well, you've served your, your, your state and your country well. Now just be prepared because of the color of your skin, you may not get a, a, a good break. And we're proud of you and we want you to walk with dignity. I'm paraphrasing now, but Governor Buckingham was really in their corner. Now, in 1864, now remember, they had been in the war since 1863. So they fought a year without getting paid at all. And Governor Buckingham went to the legislature, got the money and made sure that they were paid. And uh, I have to salute the governor for for his, his steadfast support of uh, these colored soldiers. Now, in addition to being a descendant of the 29th, you also are part of, of Massachusetts 54th Regiment, which commemorates one of the first African-American regiments of the Civil War. What drew you to becoming a reenactor? And how do you share that experience with others? I've always been fascinated with history. And then when I found out that I had a Civil War ancestor, I mean, I went bonkers. And I, 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 my wife will tell you that when I meet somebody and they mention the Civil War, it's like I've recited this. Let me tell you about the 29th, the Black soldiers who fought from Connecticut. It's, it's a standard sentence I begin my, my talk with. Um, I, I, I'm just very, very proud, and I hope the rest of the country and the rest of the state learn of this and of their bravery. Um, there were no desertions uh, in, in the whole regiment. They, they weren't in a lot of big fights, um, but they were in, in a few. Uh, Orin, my ancestor, was wounded in, uh, in Virginia. And uh, I'm, I'm just doing research in our family and proud to recognize Orin as a member of the 29th Regiment. What should we say to young people who sometimes acknowledge history and, and sometimes feel this tension about history? How do we connect them to the experiences of this regiment, the dedication of this regiment to also help young people see themselves in this powerful way? Well, you know, uh, Dr. Brown, I'm going to say that uh, a problem we have today is I don't think we know or appreciate who we are. This begins at home. And uh, sometimes the home situation isn't um, what it could be. It could be, it's not the best that it could be. But that's where it begins. That's where your self-esteem comes from. It's been said that your first mentor is your mother and your father. And if you look at it that way, uh, you can see where this self-esteem is built, and you tell your children, "Oh, you're you're good-looking, you're handsome, you're smart," and and when you keep saying that, they start to believe it. Uh, even and 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 after you tell them that time and time again, um, they 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 say, "Well, you know, I am smart. I look in the mirror, and I am I am good-looking," and that's where the self-esteem comes from. 
Now the schools can do so much and, and, and public education and the, all of that can happen, but it begins at home, I believe. And uh, I think the education system um, should be sharing some of this too. I'm a little disturbed that Connecticut doesn't even include the 29th in some of their history books. You know, I, I, was, I went to school in West Haven, Connecticut, and all I learned about the Civil War was uh, there, was, there was a war and the, uh, the white people freed the slaves and that was it. And we picked cotton. And we, we had to sing um, old, old Black Joe, oh, what's the name of the song? Uh, I hear those gentle voices calling Old Black Joe. And then when it said Old Black Joe, I was the only uh, black child in the, in the class. And they all looked at me. I don't know what the hell are you looking at me for? <laughs> But imagine my lack of self-esteem at that point. I'm not very important. I'm not very, I, I didn't have a good part in this war. I didn't do anything. I, I, I was just a slave who was freed by the white people. And that's not true. Um, I, I just need that information to get out. That's all. Um, when we think about how divided this country seems to be right now. And then we think about those moments and those spaces, especially in this last year, where we've seen people come together across all these differences and across these communities to really affirm their membership here. You mentioned it in your own journey, but what would you say to others who are interested in ancestry or being able to trace their connection back to that past to better inform their future? Well, especially if you're a, a Connecticut uh, resident, I would look into the, uh, the 29th because you'd be surprised who was in the 29th. And uh, you know, I joined Ancestry.com and that's a little expensive, but it's been very helpful to me. But there are other organizations, other uh, ancestral programs where people get together and they share findings. Um, my suggestion is is find a, a group like that. Uh, talk to your parents. Now, I had heard that we had a soldier, quote unquote. That's all I knew. And he, he had a gun and that's all we knew. Um, those pictures are gone and I have no pictures of, of any of my ancestors. But um, I think if, if we were to just do a little research, um, a lot of schools, my grandson had to uh, draw up a, a family tree. And I gave him what information I had and he shared it with his class in, in high school. And I think even that, uh, just, just sit down with your children and say, let's make a family tree. And then other things will open up. Well, your father was, your mother was, and his father was, and his mother was, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes it start. Yeah, I really appreciate you for affirming the need for those cross-generational conversations to tell our stories, to lift up that talent and that intelligence, because we also appreciate what is possible. 
you participated in the inauguration parade for President Barack Obama as part of the 54th. Talk to us about that experience. Let me tell you, it's like I talk about my buttons popping off my chest. I was so proud. I marched seven miles. The temperature was 28 degrees. I marched through the streets of Washington, up to the podium where the president and his wife were sitting and they did their little waves at us. And I was so proud. I was so proud that one, we, we had come this far and two, that we had recognized um, the, uh, the soldiers um, of the 54th, uh, soldiers who did their part in, in, in ending the Civil War. Um, it, it just did, did so much for me. You know, sometimes when I, I make my little presentations here and there, and uh, they're called living histories, and you, know, you go to a gathering and people are standing there, so you, you stand there and you give you a little, little, little story. And so many times, people will say, especially white people, they'll say, I didn't know. I didn't know. And, and the question is not rhetorical. Why didn't we know? That question of, of what we can do, what we can do together, what we can do collectively to address some of these concerns, but to also have that shared sense of ownership is also important when we think about the connection to lineage and legacy. What's something that you learned about your ancestor, Oren, that makes you particularly proud? They were proud. Oh, let me tell you, Oren's wife, um, Mary Ann, after Oren had passed, uh, she went to get his uh, bounty. That was, uh, a, a, you know what a bounty, it was a payment for his service. And she wrote to uh, whoever she wrote to in, in, in Connecticut. And they wrote back and they said, well, you, you can't be. You're not um, Oren's wife. His wife's name was uh, Lucy Sands. And uh, make a long story short, Lucy wrote back to the government. And I have a letter. I have the letter, or at least a copy of it. And she said, Oren was a good man. Uh, he and I lived together, lived together back in 1880, Lord. <laughs> she said well, that's that. a scandal. We, we, we lived together, and but we never married. And uh, things, well, we, we decided to separate. And, and uh, I, I think Oren is a good man and his wife, Marianne, is a good woman too. And they both deserve uh, the recognition by this, this payment, this payment of the bounty. I mean, you tell me now, that's the other woman <laughs> who's, saying, who's saying here, uh, this, this man and this woman, and, and she lived, they live together. And to say I live with a man, God. <laughs> but but, but that, that especially tells me what he was made of. Uh, I'm very proud of that fact. And uh, very proud that I have the, the letter too, or a copy of it. Um, a lot of what I did, I went down to the National Archives here in Washington, D.C. and spent days 
I spent days in there. They they got to know me, but it was it was so interesting. I'd be whipping through the microfish, and I found my father, who was five years old. That's he was never five years old. <laughs> living with with uh, his brothers and sisters and mother and all of that, it, it, it was just a good good journey, a good. There's now a monument dedicated to the 29th Regiment in New Haven. Why do you think those kinds of monuments and markers are important for remembering the history that you've been talking about? They're very important because they stand as a quote-unquote memorial to their, uh, their, their patriotism and their fortitude for fighting in the Civil War. And again, uh, most people didn't know. Uh, and, and it recognizes that. And that's that's a good part. That's a great part of history. Ben Hawley is a descendant of Connecticut's 29th Civil War Regiment. He's a West Haven native and currently lives in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate your indulgence. We'll have photos of the 29th Infantry on our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. Coming up, hear from a Vietnam vet who's fighting for equal rights for LGBTQ veterans. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In September 1975, Leonard Matlevich appeared on the cover of Time magazine in his Air Force uniform. Matlevich was a decorated veteran, having earned a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart in Vietnam, all while hiding his identity. He was kicked out of the Air Force after outing himself as gay. Matlevich fought until his last days to demand dignity, and his headstone reads, when I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one. Here's Matlevich in an interview in November 1975 with Studs Terkel. My father spent 32 years in the Air Force. So I tell people that I was born in Georgia, raised in Alaska, joined the Air Force in England. I'm a resident of Florida, live in Virginia, and visiting Chicago today. And I say that everything that I am and everything I hope to be, I owe to the United States Air Force. I was born in Air Force Base and graduated from Air Force High School, and most of my higher education has been through the Air Force. So it's been military all your life. Right. Even the ability to do what I'm doing today, to fight uh, regulations that are considered unconstitutional, I have to owe that to the Air Force, too. They gave me the courage because they, they kept telling me over and over again, and I kept telling the classes I taught in human relations and race relations that anything less than equality and justice is not tolerated in this country. And I convinced at least one person I was talking to myself. You're part of the Air Force. It's your life. In fact, even now, you want to go back. By the way, we should point out specifics now. You were on trial. There was a military trial. Right. It's a hearing. A, a hearing, a, rather. An administrative hearing. Not exactly a trial. I let the Air Force know March the 7th of this year that I was gay. And immediately they started processing me for discharge. And it took them from March the 7th until October the 22nd to actually do it. But uh, we intend to win, eventually, and to stop the oppression. That's Studs Terkel interviewing Leonard Matlevich in 1975. Others continued the fight for equal rights in the military, like Denny Meyer, 
who served for over a decade, even volunteering to fight in Vietnam. Because gay men were barred from serving, Denny remained quiet and endured the constant fear of being outed. But now he's an outspoken advocate for LGBTQ veterans and service members. Denny Meyer is the Veterans Affairs Officer at the American Veterans for Equal Rights, and he's the National Public Affairs Officer of the Transgender American Veterans Association. I asked him to talk about why he enlisted in the first place. And a note here, Denny is speaking on behalf of himself and not his employers. Before 1994, from World War II on to 1994, being gay or trans was just banned. It was just, period, against the law. Raw prejudice. And um, it was assumed that we weren't there even though many of us, including myself, volunteered to serve our country because we wanted to, despite the fact that we weren't wanted. So I volunteered during Vietnam, even though I was doubly exempt as a college student and as a gay person, but I happened to be a first-generation American. My parents were World War II Holocaust refugees. My mother arrived here as an illegal immigrant and she was allowed to stay. So in 1968, when the anti-Vietnam War protests were sweeping the country, I saw I was in college and I saw my fellow American students burn the American flag. Very common thing at the time. Well, I'm a first generation American and pushed my button. And mind you, I'm not some right-wing nutcase. In fact, I'm a flaming left-wing nutcase. So, <laughs> but I said, that's my flag. And I said, it's time for me to pay my country back for my family's freedom. So I left college and joined the Navy. Denny said it was hard to be a gay service member, especially because of threats of violence. Even though he was risking his life for his country, he says he still felt that he wasn't treated as human. So I had to watch every second be hypervigilant. And every single day for 10 years, I heard somebody making crude comments and crude jokes about what they would do if they ever found a queer, about how they would kill me. And the person speaking never knew that the guy he was talking about was standing right next to him. If you think that doesn't give you PTSD, it does. 50 years later, I'm still hypervigilant. I served for 10 years in the Navy and in the Army Reserve, and I became a sergeant first class. And by the time you're in E7, they're really looking at you and paying attention. And it was 1978. And I had a long-term companion. I had my lover, we lived together, loved each other, and he wasn't a U.S. citizen, he was a foreign national. And I started getting really, really nervous, knowing that it was just a matter of time before somebody followed me home. And so I left. And an E-7 Sergeant First Class doesn't do that. But I didn't tell them why, I just left. After 10 years. That's the midpoint of a career in the military. They threw away all the benefits I would have gotten after 20 years. 
And after that, I uh, went on and wasted my life. I went out and got a master's degree <laughs> and so on. So uh, then I became permanently disabled as a result of my service. I tried to join an organization of LGBT veterans and ended up talking to GLBVA, Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual Veterans of America, which was our original name. And I said, where's the New York chapter? They said, there isn't one. You started. About three months later, I was a national public affairs officer, <laughs> uh, as well as being responsible for the entire East Coast. And what we do is we advocate for our right to serve openly and for our benefits. Denny Meyer has been working to change laws that discriminate, like reinstating benefits for veterans who were dishonorably discharged. If you were one of the 100,000 people who patriotically volunteered and served from World War II to 1994, and in, in, in 1957 you were discharged dishonorably as a homosexual, to this day, you still can't get that rectified. In 2013, there was a bill introduced which would automate and streamline the discharge upgrade process. And it was blocked in committee by the Republican Party three times and remains that way. It had been hoped that come this January, that will change, but unfortunately it doesn't look like it, does it? So, we still don't have the right to get discharge upgrades. I helped to write that bill because I've been so involved as, as the congressional liaison and so on that when it was written, I saw a mistake and called the author um, of the bill. And the author was a full Navy captain working in Charlie Rangel's office and he had his military liaison, which, who, who was a full Navy captain, who was gay, who wrote the bill. And I told him, I said, you're too focused on don't ask, don't tell. There are 100,000 people discharged before that, and you've got to include them in the bill. So he rewrote it. So, but the bill has gone nowhere. So, uh, in, in, in 2004, I initiated in New York City the, the um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal resolution in the New York City Council, which generally deals with billion-dollar budgets. <laughs> and uh, uh, I wanted a resolution urging the New York congressional delegation to work on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We succeeded. I expected nothing more than a little bit of visibility while it went viral. It was copied all across America by cities and counties and by the state of California. So this is the kind of thing we do, in short, and we're still at it. After Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, people said, well, that's it, we're done. The battle is over, like hell. We often hear people saying, thank you for your service. and. I want you to say to us, what will it mean for us to truly think 
thank gay veterans for their service who have sacrificed so much and continue, as you said, continue to deal with so much. What would that look like? <coughs> well, on the one hand, Vietnam veterans in general never got thanked. You know, it was the My Lai incident which labeled all of us baby killers and monsters. Like we went to Vietnam to kill people when we just were taking up our duty to serve America. Um, at the time I joined in 1968, at the time I volunteered, thousands of Americans were running away to Canada to avoid serving. Thousands of straight young men were lying and saying they were gay to avoid serving. I lied and said I was straight so I could serve. When Vietnam veterans came back, nobody thanked them. That's legendary. Nowadays, it's very popular to say, oh, thank you for serving if you see the veteran's hat on somebody's head. And Vietnam veterans are like, it's a 40, you know, we're a bunch of grumpy old 70-year-olds, you know. <laughs> and it's like 50 years too late, you know. So how can you actually thank us by voting? Or by having voted in the last week? And I don't have to tell you how. <laughs> so uh, that's that's how to thank us. Uh, to vote for people who would legislate our rights and your rights and every other minority's rights. Thanks to Denny Meyer, Veterans Affairs Officer at the American Veterans for Equal Rights and National Public Affairs Officer of the Transgender American Veterans Association. When we come back, We'll talk about how veterans here in Connecticut are faring during the pandemic. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. With the rates of COVID-19 rising in Connecticut, the state is again implementing restrictions that impact businesses, schools, and individuals, including veterans. Veterans who may have doctor's appointments or need to attend support groups often struggle because they have limited access to a phone or reliable internet. Joining us to talk about how these veterans are faring in Connecticut and how we can better support them is Darren Preslow, Supervising Attorney at Connecticut Veterans Legal Center in West Haven. Darren, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So talk to us about the center and the work that you do in order to support and empower veterans. So the Connecticut Veteran, Veterans Legal Center is a medical legal partnership with VA Connecticut. So what that means is that we get referrals from VA clinicians, social workers, people working with veterans, disabled veterans in Connecticut, when they have civil legal issues. And my organization's job is to help veterans resolve their legal issues, whether it's dealing with evictions, other sort of housing condition issues, sometimes it's with income issues, whether it's child support, trying to deal with debt collection issues. And we also do a lot of work to help make sure veterans are getting their benefits as well as making sure that all veterans have access to VA healthcare and to the benefits that they deserved and earned due to their service. I imagine that doing this work, the level of coordination that it requires is difficult even during the best of times. 
But talk to us then about doing this during a pandemic, especially when you think about dealing with the court system and all of the challenges that that entails. Yeah, it's gotten complicated on a couple of levels. We're usually down the hall from the clinicians that we're working with. As of now, our space, we're not medical professionals, so we're not really on site anymore. So a lot of our work now is all phone work and trying to track down busy people when we can't just stop by and see them. When it comes to the courts, that's an even worse problem because the courts are not really set up to deal with the clients that we represent. The courts have tried for years to focus on what they call access to justice, but the COVID outbreak has really torn open the digital divide, showing how the courts are not ready for those without technology access to be able to fully access the courts. Is that fair then, or is that just? We've heard so much about um, trying to get students and families access to education and the sort of technical divide and challenge there. But if veterans don't have the technical capacity to access the court system, what can be done to ensure that they are accessing a fair and just process? Well, on some ways, I think the branch, the judicial branch, needs to think about what that access means. Oftentimes, when you go to hearings, there's always a discussion of due process. Well, they were here, they heard, that's enough. So, well, they can just call in. So I think the first issue that the court needs to recognize is that people who are living in poverty, like many of my clients, don't have full access to technology. They just can't pick up the phone and stay on hold or have the confidence with more advanced technology like smartphone necessarily to be able to use them effectively. A lot of the hearings they're doing is on this product called Microsoft Teams, and that requires downloading software, having bandwidth to access it. Like, oh, well, they can just call in. Well, that's fantastic. So everyone else can be on the video call, but this indigent person, hopefully with an attorney, but in many of these cases, they don't have an attorney across the state. I don't see how that's fair at all. How are you navigating that? Are you seeing a drop off in your clients getting the support and the services that they need? Or are you able to become more creative in how you connect your clients to service and representation? Well, luckily for our organization, we've always been sort of, um, how do we put this? I don't want to say we've been not under resources, but we are kind of in a partnership with the VA. We don't have permanent office space. So most of us are working from home right now. But the benefit is that we were always never had permanent space. So we are fairly digital. So as an organization, we're fairly fluid. As for working with our clients, it is us finding more ways to be creative to get them access and relying on our partners as well. Um, The VA is still moving forward with its legal processes. So for benefits and those claims, and I have found the VA to be slightly more receptive than the court system about making some of those changes. The problem also is with the courts is that they don't want to hear from me saying, oh, well, we don't like the way that you're doing your process, right? They want to have this area of independence where it also limits them from actually hearing some of these comments. And I'm not alone in this opinion. Many of the legal service organizations around the state have been asking the court to think about how they're doing this. And it just keeps moving forward. The judicial put out a video out a couple of weeks ago which was extremely insensitive to the needs of people living in poverty and lacks access, access of technology. It was, it's very tone deaf. And I don't understand. I understand judicial needs to be impartial and kept apart in some ways from, you know, political movements and things that are going on. But at the same time, 
understanding what poverty is like in Connecticut, one of the wealthiest states in the country, yet we still have people living in pretty severe poverty and lacks of access and segregation and all these other issues are just lost for some reason. I, and I've not been able to figure out why they don't want to fix that or maybe why they can't might be the better answer there. You know, it seems, Darren, that poverty is a public health concern in a state like Connecticut, where having access to housing, to safe, affordable housing, can have all of these other consequences for people who are living in an unstable situation. What about evictions and what you're seeing for your clients? Connecticut has been very ahead of the curve in some ways, but I wonder what the situation is for veterans in our state. Um, so I'm going to pull back a little bit about Connecticut being ahead of the curve. Um, we were, if you looked at um, the eviction lab, we had one of the higher ratings when it came to COVID protections. And the governor's office has done a great job when it comes to non-payment if it occurred during the pandemic. But pan- the pandemic didn't create all the poverty. It just made it a lot worse in many cases. So there were people who were struggling going into the pandemic, including some of my clients. And then the shuttering of the courts and not being able to figure out what was going on put many in a situation that when the courts reopened by putting it on their website, right, people didn't realize things started going again. So default's been passed down. There's been a lot of work trying to prevent the people who are in these pre-COVID cases from getting it. Luckily for my clients, the VA takes a housing first perspective when it comes to dealing with homelessness and a variety of other issues. So the VA has a lot of resources, whether it's in the shelter system, whether it's through their acquisition of what's called HUD VASH vouchers, and just their partners where luckily if my veteran is behind, there's a good chance that I can get them more financial resources, possibly, right, to get them caught up where many other people in poverty Connecticut don't get that right, or that access. What other issues and challenges are you seeing for veterans across the state when it comes to navigating this pandemic? I think one of the hardest things that I was speaking to some, some of my clients recently about this is just losing the routines that they've always counted on, right? Some veterans, there was a lot of group-based treatment that they would go to, which has been a lot harder to do during the pandemic. Think about your AA meetings and those sorts of pieces. Yes, some of them are online, but you know, some people, if they're getting um, a government subsidized cell phone, they're only getting 400 minutes a month right now, right? They're not at the unlimited minute minutes. So they have to decide, some of them are saying, I'm gonna to choose to put all my minutes towards treatment, right? Which shouldn't have to be that kind of decision. The VA is looking at ways to roll out more phones and more access to veterans, right? But it's not there yet, although they're aware of it. And they've been, even before the pandemic, looking at the ideas of telehealth and how that works more for other states than Connecticut, where people are hours and hours away from the VA, not here where it tends to be an hour. But the the vans that would bring them to treatment aren't running right now. So if you have to, you have to do telehealth. Well, it says sometimes you actually just need to go in and see the doctor. You can't do it over the phone. And it's it's not the same. I mean, we're doing the best in the situation, but no one thought we'd be here, what, seven months later? We are honoring Veterans Day this year on the heels of a very contentious election cycle and a lot of questions about what do we do, how do we move forward as a country. 
When you think about what needs to happen in our state and in our country in order to really not just appreciate veterans, but to support them and to invest in their wellness, what would you say we can do collectively in order to affirm that? I think one thing that we could do is more than just saying thank you for your service, right? Very real. Quick, people are quick to thank veterans when it's easy to thank them. But when it comes to dealing with the challenges that they have to deal with permanently, whether it is long-term mental health issues, um, limited work resources after because they're disabled because of their service, it's always, yeah, I don't mind helping someone as long as it's not next to me, right? So making sure that we have integrated housing across the state for people with disabilities like veterans, so they are with everyone else and not segregated to where they happen to have certain housing for them. And I know the state is looking at some of those resources and the movement towards more and more vouchers is making that happen. But in West Haven, you know, some landlords are tired of having the veteran, veteran people living in their buildings, right? We see the rents are rising below above the voucher level, so therefore vouchers can't be used there. A lot of this stuff you can't always actually find hard evidence for, but when you talk to the social workers who spend their time trying to work with veterans to find housing, it's difficult. I think the court also needs to do some work and the state in general about leaving these eviction records out there for people to buy up and sell. The idea that person's one mistake will be held against them for the next three to five years isn't helpful, right? Research has said that being evicted can set you and your family back at least a year, right? So what can we do to make that easier, those transitions better, and to support them not just when they're coming home, but when they fully integrate back in society? Dan, we've talked about access to justice. We've talked about how access to technology and housing uh, affects that kind of process. Is there anything that you think is missing? in the conversation about veteran support or ensuring that veterans are protected and uh, also supported through all of this? I think one issue that kind of goes understated outside of the veteran community, and it is also somewhat divisive within the veteran community, but it has to do with the veteran's discharge status. So when a veteran leaves the military, right, they get a DD-14, which explains and sets up the benefits for the rest of their lives. Some veterans, when they're leaving service, are actually sick. But unfortunately, the Department of Defense gives them a negative discharge during that process, right? The DOD, when getting someone out, is more concerned about having them leave and not necessarily how they do it. Um, And veteran, the justice within the DOD is not the same as within the civil procedures. So a veteran who leaves the military at age 22 will have a discharge that says, other than honorable. This takes away a great deal of their benefits. Although they can possibly still get health care, they won't get the GI Bill. <laughs> they don't get the VA home loan. And many of, I've had many clients for part of their reason of going to join the military is to get a step out of poverty, right? We recruit in some of our poorest communities for veterans to become, people to become part of the military and to join. I worked in a school for years where we had an ROTC program in the high school where we were recruiting young men and women to join the military. Those students come back to the same communities they left and sometimes more damage because of their service. And we need to be thinking about how we take care of all veterans. 
Connecticut and Senator Murphy have done some work on expanding how we look at these pieces. My organization is working on making a more national movement towards understanding the situation and allowing all veterans and more of them to get access to healthcare. So for the longest time, if you had a PTSD diagnosis but had an OTH, depending on why you were discharged, you couldn't go to the VA for mental health treatment. You were out of luck. So Senator Murphy put together with colleagues in Congress saying that, no, there needs to be an exception for those with mental health trauma and sometimes even seeing issues like MST. So someone could be sexually assaulted in the military, get a bad discharge, then not be able to access the VA when they get out. The VA is working on that, but we think more can be done. There is a rulemaking going on right now where they are looking at whether they should be doing these regulatory bars to VA access. My organization is arguing that they should not, but there's a good chance that the VA will continue to keep the door closed for many veterans. And we're working very hard to make sure that's not consistent or not continuing in the future. Darren Preslow is supervising attorney at Connecticut Veterans Legal Center in West Haven. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski. Thanks today to Nana Danso. We'd love to hear from you. Send your feedback to disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>